You're listening to the Wes and Walker Show. I was able to sound the siren for you guys oh, in a again. victory. Here we you know go what I'm again. saying? Uh, last season. It's Wes. And so I was told that right. the spots are full for this year. And so we need the big dog to come through and pull some weight. Get the Wes and Walker right. Show up there right. so that because we can sound that long. And Walker. You want to get on that siren? And the fact that you brought us the WC, you're in. Only on Sports Radio 92.7 FM WFNC. There we go. Let's go. Wes and Walker sounding the siren. Welcome back, folks. This is the Wes and Walker Show, Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. The texts are flowing on the FanDuel text line, 704-570-9610. Got some great texts going there. 704 number says, where was Mad Dog at when the beloved Hornets raised prices 275%? Just because y'all don't like temper, you can't let the Hornets off the hook. They haven't won nothing. I believe that we, uh, did, didn't we uh, get him a little bit of the business too? I just, I just want to know from the 704 number. I just want to ask a question. <laughs> Do you really think that we were trying to let the Hornets off of the hook right. because we were talking about Mad Dog's rant on Carolina? You're asking where was Mad Dog's rant on the Hornets who raised the prices? You think the Charlotte Hornets are going to make first take? <laughs> why Why in the world would that be a big enough storyline for first take with Mad Dog to talk about Charlotte raising the prices? And it's a lot. For season ticket holders, it's a ton. We did talk about that. But I, are you getting mad at Mad Dog for not bringing something up on national TV? Right, that is if a we national, can relay the message to him. A national-centric topic, and then you're saying, like, we're letting the Hornets off of the hook? Like, we had a guest on to talk all about it. Eric Spanberg, WFNZ.com. We'll throw a promo in while you're at it. Well, he not obviously doesn't listen to the show every day. I, you know, look, and that's that's fine. Like, I, I get it. Just I hope to be clear to this person and everybody else. It's not like we're letting the Hornets off of the hook. We're, this is the Panthers' time to criticize, and then we'll criticize the Hornets when it's time for that. Jack's got a great text as well, too. He says, I work so that in the fall I can spend my money watching the tackles hip toss <laughs> Bradley Bozeman and a 4% increase isn't going to stop me. Yeah. Especially if they start winning. I mean, there's no way that, team, that fans aren't going to line up to go see a winning team. It doesn't matter what you charge them. I, I like this one picture. God, I'm trying to find it again. There's so many texts rolling in. But there was one, uh, I think it was Spaceman, who sent a picture of it with the news graphic. And there was the banner saying, idiot Panthers fan, ready to spend 4% more on Panthers tickets. Because you're right. Diehard Panthers fans are still going to go to these games. And that's just what sports is. You love your team. And David Tepper's going to raise the prices. And we're going to get mad. And that it's okay to call that out, for sure. But... Of course, you're playing with the love of the sports uh, teams that these fans have. And, yeah, it doesn't feel right, man. Not after a season like last year. It doesn't feel right. All right. And now it is time, without further ado, to go to the campus. Kona. All right. As we get this thing kicked off, man, wanted to give a quick shout out, even though this high school was my uh, bitter, bitter rival when I was in high school. Don't like anything North Mech. But future Duke Blue Devil at North Mecklenburg star Isaiah 
Evans has been named a 2024 McDonald's All-American, and he was presented his jersey before the game just a couple of days ago. He's ranked a number 11 prospect in the nation. He's also ranked as a number three player in the state of North Carolina. He's a six-foot-six forward, and he's part of a star-studded number one recruiting class for head coach John Shire. He will join number one overall prospect Cooper Flagg on the McDonald's All-American team as well. I'm sure Fiddy's excited to hear that. But talking about on the court last night, the Blue Devils get the job done and run rough shot over Louisville, 84-59. to They've won eight of their last 11 meetings with Louisville. They clinched the double bye in the ACC tournament. They limited Louisville to 23 points through the first 20 minutes, matching the lowest first-half total from an ACC opponent this season. Dished out 23 assists. Kyle Filipowski, who we thought was probably going to be out for the season after that court storming, but he came back and grabbed 10 rebounds, dished out six assists, and had nine points on the evening. So at this point, with Duke coming back in a rousing way off of the loss to uh, Wake Forest, who do we trust more at this point? Is it the Tar Heels? Or is it the Duke Blue Devils as they are on a collision course to see each other once again and as we head into the ACC tournament? I trust North Carolina more. I think they're a better team overall, and I know they have a lot of talent with Duke, but I think they also grind a little harder in their physical, and I don't think Duke is that. And we've seen them have their struggles with physical teams before. Harrison Ingram, he'll go get that rebound. Armando might not have a bag, as you like to say, Wes, but he'll go get that rebound too. R.J. Davis, while struggling for quite some time inside the three-point line, the guy can still shoot with the best of them. And even if he has a bad game against one of the best defensive teams every single year in college basketball, he answers the very next time out against Miami. I think the shots aren't falling at the same exact time for Carolina, and so I think offensively that's allowed them to struggle at times, especially with Cormac Ryan having a tough roller coaster type of year and with Harrison Ingram being able to shoot from three, but sometimes his offense, it, it comes and goes. I think at the beginning of the season, we saw him scoring a lot of points. There was a stretch where he was averaging 10, like every single time out. He has the Duke performance where he goes for 20 and 20, it feels like. So there are just so many different points of production you can go to if you're North Carolina. And I think the floor is always a ton of hustle. Maybe not against Georgia Tech. Maybe that's true. Or whether, you know, the Clemson loss, maybe that's true. But for the most part, you're always going to get hustle from them. And they rebound really well. And they play defense really well. And I think that's always going to give them a better shot. Like, I can rely on that more than anything I can point to and say I can rely on that for Duke. The only thing that gives Carolina a shred of advantage for me is the fact of their strength of schedule and everything that they've dealt with coming up to this point. I feel like they're more battle-tested, and that's the only reason I'm going to give them an edge because right now, as I've said, I feel like Carolina's not playing their best basketball. We know about how they can give up leads late, and I just feel like on the perimeter, we've talked about R.J. Davis, and he had the monster game the other night, but we talked about the efficiency issues he's been having as of late. Is it fatigue or what is it? Armando Baycott, I'm not sure if I could trust him. A game in, game out at this point. And Harrison Ingram also has been up and down. He's been steady on the boards, but as far as scoring and providing that big presence he once did, that's been a little shaky as well. I just feel like Duke, as far as some of the options that they have for them, when they get into some sticky situations, you've got Roach, you got Flip, you got McCain, you have... 
uh, multiple guys who can get a bucket for you when it's needed. But I will still give Carolina a shred of an edge for now because I feel like they are a bit more battle-tested. Fiddy, what say you? I feel like we know what the answer is going to be, but break it down for us. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to lean Carolina's way because I think, like Walker said, I think they're the tougher team. They're better defensively. They're the better rebounding team. You've also got the best player between the two programs and R.J. Davis. And also, like, if you're a Duke fan, can you can you trust Kyle Filipowski to not put himself in harm's way again and, you know, try to cure, you know, some sort of injury that's going to put him on death's doorstep? I mean, it's just a real tough place to be with the Duke if you're, if you're, if, if you're a Duke fan because, uh, you know, you've got a, a, a group that wants to play victim and, you know, that hmm. doesn't <laughs> – doesn't play the well this time of the year. Fire so, like a machine gun. Um, I mean, I the fact that they, they they even had to play him to beat Louisville last night was embarrassing. Like you want to sit up there and whine and, and cry like a three year old about banning court storming and say it was intentional. You at least got to miss one game, and he missed absolutely no time. And um, that was short sighted uh, on their part. I agree. Louisville. Well, you I mean, can miss everything that they game do to... is short sighted. So they're like me okay. driving in the rain. <laughs> That's no sided. Yeah, that's blindsided. <laughs> he got blindsided when he shoved that fan first, and then he, then he then he got hit and wanted to play victim. So, I, how, what what is the gap between North Carolina and Duke on as in terms of how much you trust him? Wes gave us a shred of a gap. What's the gap for you? Because I I still have a pretty decent one. I mean, I know North Carolina can still struggle for sure. I also think. The opponent three-point percentage has been pretty lucky for some of the offense that they've played. And I think that has a lot to do, especially we see this in analytics age with the NBA as well. Like, we can see that at the college level. Do we expect Syracuse? Like, they shot 63% with a bunch of mid-rangers. 63. Well, they did go into NC State and Chris Bale hit eight first-half threes. Yeah, well, you're you're they hit a lot of threes, right? Like that's yeah. what I'm saying. The three point luck has been very good. For that's the what I'm saying, but you call it luck, but I'm just saying they had they went to NC State and kind of did the same thing. A little confused, but oh, no, no, I'm saying I, you call it luck, and I'm just saying is it luck if it happens more than one time? And you brought up the Syracuse matchup, and I was just saying that Syracuse followed that performance up going to NC State and shot the ball really well from three. Yeah, I guess, I guess when you're talking about just a string of games, like this is what you look to first and foremost. It mm-hmm. happened with the Charlotte Hornets. Portland missed 18 wide open threes, and we mm-hmm. were still giving them a lot of credit because of the defense that they were playing. But the open threes, the other team just hit them. With Miami, they just couldn't miss from three point range either. And so that's what allowed them to get back in the game, even though I'm not looking at North Carolina saying, man, they got to get a handout. They got to contest. They got to have better closeouts. It's just that they're hitting mm-hmm. Syracuse. As we mentioned, the mid range jumpers falling time and time again for Starling and the fact that you have that for men's. I just think I can rely on that a decent amount more. If you wanted to play the numbers, very nerd take. I agree. You can clown me for it all you want, but I do think the numbers would bear out a little bit more. So for Carolina, what they're ranked top 10 in Ken Palm, if I'm not mistaken, defensively at at least with their rating. They're very good. It's just they ran into some hot shooters the last couple of times, and if that continues, they'll continue to struggle. But I don't expect those numbers to continue to stay up there. Uh, Virginia took down Boston College 72-68. to 68. When you look at the ACC standings, they're still sitting in there third with a 21-8 and eight overall record at 12-6 and six in the ACC. Do we feel like that Virginia is a real contender when the ACC tournament comes up in two weeks? I don't think so. Their offense is putrid, and it feels worse. Their offense is their offense is usually efficient when they have their stars, 
they don't run up and down the floor. We know the brand of Virginia basketball. But when they've had their talent before, they would just make the most out of every single possession, even if it meant killing 30 seconds of the 35-second shot clock. They would eventually end up with a bucket. They were one of the more efficient offensive teams. They just didn't run. This year, they don't have anybody that you feel is a threat to shoot. They don't have anybody that you feel is a threat to score and put up numbers in bunches. If they don't have a decent, decent defensive game, then it feels like they're going to get beat by 20. That's why we see them. When they lose, they get destroyed most of the time. No, I don't think they're a real contender at all. Yeah, the only thing for me with them is just they don't have enough bucket getters. I mean, your two leading scorers, they only have two players that average in double figures, Reese Beekman and Isaac McNeely. And Reese Beekman only averages 13.9 points per game. And in this team, you need at least three to four guys averaging double figures if they really want to compete. And I think your leading score needs to be a little bit further over uh, 13.9 points per game, 14 points, whatever you want to call it. Fiddy, what do you feel like is missing from the Cavaliers? Even though the record's good, but what is missing with them for you to say that they're a true contender in this conference? They don't have a guy that they can say, go get me a bucket. And when when this thing was rolling, when Tony Bennett established themselves as a premier program in the ACC, you had NBA talent in a Joe Harris, who's been in the de- the league for a decade, DeAndre Hunter, um, Ty Jerome, Kyle Guy. Like you had legitimate high-end talent. You have a good nucleus of players that fit the way they want to play, but it's so much easier to you know compact the court, compress the court, and as good as Reese Beekman are and Isaac McNeely are, they're not good enough to consistently beat you in the half court. I don't feel like they're a threat in the ACC tournament. I feel like we're on a collision course to have Duke Carolina part three on that Saturday night when we get to Washington, D.C. I think the sleeper is going to be whoever emerges as the four seed between Wake and Clemson. Whoever gets that, that last double bye, I think, will have the recipe to maybe upset the one seed in the quarterfinal round, or the semifinal round. All right, and before we get out of here, App State took out Old Dominion 89-64. That win clinched the one seed for them in the Sun Belt Conference Tournament and at least a share of the regular season title for the first time since the 1999-2000 season. When we come back, folks, Merrill Hodge joins us. You will not want to miss that on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Okay, in these categories compared to May, I wouldn't touch May. I wouldn't. I wouldn't grab May. Ooh. I wouldn't draft him in the first round. There's a bunch of things that bother me. He's extremely inconsistent as uh, his accuracy, his processing inconsistent. Um, he's not extremely athletic. I think I find him more stiff. He's got a longer throwing motion, which allows more hits in our league than he gets in college. And I'm just bothered by it. You know, in fact, I just I knew we were going to do this, so I just wanted to. I hadn't mm-hmm. watched him for a couple weeks, so I, one of my last games I looked at was the NC State, NC State game, and that may be one of his worst games I'd ever seen. I mean, in play, mm-hmm. and but but it validated. He's at the end of the season, and it, ended, it validated a couple things. Welcome back, folks, to the Wes and Walker Show. The moment you have been waiting for has arrived. Joining us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline, we have inspirational speaker, former NFL athlete and ESPN analyst, author, father, and cancer survivor. His book, Brainwash, is available now. You can follow him on X at Merrill Hodge. Merrill Hodge joins us to talk about the NFL draft and a little bit of Panthers mixed in. Merrill, I had your football card uh, as well back in the day. We were talking about that during the break, man. But how you doing? Oh, Wes Walker, I'm doing great, brother. I couldn't be – I told you, your producer, I'm terrible today. It's a bad day. 
He's having a rough day. Just, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's okay Everything to mess with our producer. We mess with him all yeah, the time. All so the I'm time glad you joined like, in on the phone. I didn't, I didn't say it just like that, but I was like, I was just kidding. I think I caught him off guard. I was like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Everything's really good. <laughs> That's great. So, Meryl, coming into this process, when we've seen some of the sound bites that have been out there, so did you come into the process expecting to be wowed by Drake May? And then at what point did you realize that there were some deficiencies there that you thought were glaring? Well, um, Here's actually I have never have this is what I love about watching tape like and it's almost like a painter you know I have this empty canvas and because I come up with words watching tape that I could never come up with I'm just not smart enough to come up with words that that come out of my mouth when but when I watch tape so I didn't really have any expectations um, very seldom do I watch enough college football to have you know an expectation of somebody I've learned I've learned no matter what your expectation is tape is just going to tell you the truth. And so uh, when I started watching him, now I've heard that he's the second, you know, a second, a second should be the second pick, or some having the first pick or second. Anyway, so but that's your skill set has to have, fit a certain standard. Then and it's something I, I played in the league, I understood. I've studied the league, and I even coached at every level. So I, I, I've seen it from every scope that you can imagine for for forty years. So my eyes know what takes to play in the national football league. See, I don't watch kids on where they're playing. I'm watching where they're going to play. And that's, I think, some of the problem with when I make evaluations because people see them in college and see how they played in college. Well, the field, everything changes in the NFL. The field changes, and if there's anybody going, what do you mean the field changes? Okay, pass marks in college are wide. In the NFL, they're narrow. In our game in the NFL, you play in the middle. In college, you play on the perimeter. And that's period. Most of the time, your guys are better than my guys. My guys are just as good as your guys now. Now it's about schemes and matchups. Defenses change. Coverages, the way they do them and the pressures change. The offense you're going to run changes. Everything that you've ever done is going to change. The one thing that will transition, if you have it, is a specific skill set that you have to have if you have a chance to be successful. And let's just wrap it around these two things. And this is where it starts accuracy and processing and they are interwoven you cannot have one without the other one of those if you don't will run you right out of the league and then you start building from there then it's about anticipation pocket presence toughness yes and throw mobility in there i mean i've always loved mobility a guy that can make some things happen but that's not gonna if that's your foundational point like last year you had richardson and will levis that was their foundational point everybody loved their speed and their style i'm like now, are you talking about running backs or quarterbacks? Okay, because nobody's going to run them. If Mike Vick can't do it and Lamar Jackson can't do it, and nobody in this draft's going to do it. So going from there, and at the end of the day, you have to be able to play from the pocket. And then our pocket in the NFL, 70% of all throws are from a dirty pocket, meaning there's going to be some type of traffic, um, pressure around you, and you have to function under that. So that's what I look for. And I really spent a lot of time finding that. Listen, you may only find a half a dozen plays a game that you get, but you got to add them all up. And after an entire season or season and a half, you can you can get say ninety hundred plays, and you get a true feeling for that. So, you know, when I was going through him, I was actually I was actually shocked. I was shocked at how erratic he was as a passer from every perspective, short, intermediate. Long. Now, does he make some great throws? Because people go, oh, what about that touchdown throw? Okay, that's, that's one throw. TV lies, highlights really lie. 
you got to look at the whole scope of throws. And when you look at them, clean pocket, dirty pocket, he is he is very inconsistent. There's no consistency with how he throws it. Um, watching how he's handled um, pressures, I was like, sometimes he didn't even see it. You know, and then sometimes he looked at it, but he didn't acknowledge it as far as throwing it. And I was like, now that you could only be in a room with him and go, hey, what do you think in there to have the true story there? But it's not processed right. Um, he doesn't handle right. His mobility, he has some mobility, but he is very stiff. Um, he's not quick. Um, and see, those things add up when you get to the, the NFL. Everybody's so much faster and quicker and smarter than what you just got done playing. So all these things get magnified and um his throwing motion is relatively wider you know and and see you remember byron leftwich yes okay byron leftwich had one flaw one flaw he was accurate processed things for you he had a wind-up motion okay that wind-up motion ran him out of the league wide you could get to him better that half a second allowed you to pressure him in ways you couldn't pressure other quarterbacks that had a quick release you got more hits on him and you see just all these little things start that up. And if you don't equate and look at those things, but that's why I just believe a lot of people who are measurable evaluators. So there's, there's two types of evaluators. There's football evaluators and there's measurable evaluators. And there's more measurable evaluators than football evaluators. And the first thing that you hear from a measurable guy is just start hearing how many yards he threw for, how fast he is, how tall he is, and about which percentage completion percent, blah, blah, blah. How he plays and that skill set is far more important than, than than the number aspect of things. And when I go through him, and I keep going through him, I'm just like, God, he just every part of it. Like I mentioned that NC State game he showed. I I did. I had I watched about I think all these games, but that one. And I'm like, well, just this this that last one of the year. I didn't get to watch. They don't. I didn't watch the. He didn't play in the bowl game. And I was like, wow, that might have been his worst game, the NC State game. I was like, wow, that's just. So if I'm going to make it, and, and, and if he's picked at number two, do you know what everybody's expecting? That's a dangerous word. But the expectations are that he is a, you know, a Joe Burrow or a C.J. Stroud, and he does not have that skill set. It's not even close to being harnessed and developed. Can a lot of these things we just talked about get better? Um, yes, I don't think the accuracy thing – and the accuracy thing will always be a major issue. Um, the processing thing, because these guys have 20 hours a week, too. You know, so um, coaching will matter. Time spent will matter. The overall kid's commitment will matter. But I, all the things that he has to ratchet up and get better and be really good at, there won't be enough time. Though I've watched Kenny Pickett. Kenny Pickett had a really good skill set. None of these flaws. And he was eroding right in front of my eyes. In Pittsburgh, had he not got hurt, I, he's probably his his career probably goes south. Just because I I believe kids like that get ruined mentally before they get ruined physically because the expectations they start functioning bad, they start playing faster, they jump completely out of character. Now, if you don't have a really good raw skill set, oh my gosh, I mean, the hinges come off so fast, it's not even funny, and so. And then people start getting fired, and then you have change, and then in a few years, um, you're Justin Fields. So what do you like about his game? Are there some positives that you took away from your study? Mm. <laughs> well, um, I've never well, heard grunt as an evaluation, but I think we got everything <laughs> we need to know from the grunt, Merrill. 
Uh, well, I, I, you know what? This is not, I, listen, this, when you talk about evaluated football player, you know, I don't even know the, the young man. And, I, you know, I, my son played quarterback, too. And he went, and he was an elite, really good player. Went all, and he played at BYU. And um, so, listen, I, I get how, I mean, I, that's why I actually don't want to know the, the people before I evaluate them because I don't want to like them. <laughs> and then I'm like, I don't, I want to be influenced. I want to take, tell me the truth. Because that's how I, I look at it. It's like, my, my job is can they play in the National Football League? And do they have the skill set to do that? And, you know, when you make that judgment, you say, oh, you don't like the kid. Well, I don't even know him. Um, I'm just telling you where the skill set stands right now and the odds of him transitioning to this league. And keep in mind, he'll go in there. He's not going to back up. He's going to go right in the fire. It's not a playoff team. New staff. Um, didn't they just uh, – who's their offensive coordinator? Wasn't it uh, – didn't they just hire um, – Chip Lindsey at North Carolina was the new offensive coordinator they hired coming into this year. Well, I meant um, in Washington. Wasn't mm. it uh, – It was Cliff uh, Kingsbury. Kingsbury. Yeah, Kingsbury. Okay, now, now, okay Cliff Kingsbury. Uh, Cliff is a, a – listen, when he played – when he first got in there, when we um, – I was with, I've, I've done a lot of stuff with the Steelers, too. I've helped them in their scouting department. But we went up there without Ben Roethlisberger. We went up there with Duck Hodges and beat him. And I knew we were going to beat him because I looked at their offense. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is Texas Tech. Like, See, in the NFL, it's, you have to have short, intermediate, and vertical. You have to be explosive. And you have to show – like in college, I mean, like, shoot. Um, like they talk about, you know, you guys in North Carolina have, you know, predominant college system. It ain't like USC's. USC runs way more lateral stuff. Um, a clean's very lateral stuff. He did that in the NFL. Now he's gradually evolving, but see, like that wouldn't be a guy that I think that is really equipped to to develop an NFL quarterback. I think he's good at developing college guys and college stuff, but what what he's what he's done and. The people he's worked with, I mean, Kyle Murray worked with, and that was going to be a great match. And Kyle Murray continued to erode. And it was eroding right in front of his eyes until he got, you know, they fired him. So, I, you know, I, uh, that's another dangerous environment. You go into a, I don't think, a real seasoned group that uh, would help him if he if he goes there. And it's just, it's, it's just a daunting task with the, the still set that he has right now. Um, probably probably best for him if he, he sat at least a year. Well, that ain't going to happen. I mean, honestly, he would be probably uh, devastated. But if he got drafted in the second round, maybe the best thing ever happened to him, because then he could see all of the areas that he has to get better at in order to just be consistent and be successful in the NFL. But I, uh, I didn't leave with a lot of things that impressed me. That I, um, and so you got to realize what you can fix and what you can't fix. You know, the accuracy thing. I'm going to. I have yet to see. Think you can you can bring it in a little bit, but it's always going to be a problem, and it's usually going to be a problem when it matters. And when I watch him make throws, because you could put a highlight reel together that actually he could look like he never misses a throw, and that's why I say TV lies and highlights always lie. You can't look at just a few; you've got to look at all of them. And I just wasn't left um, impressed. I um, um, I would I, I would not I would have given him a a later round grade. Like I would never give him a first round grade if I was with the team. I'd have, I'd have put him in a low second or third round area because of all those things he needs to work on. And um, it sounds mean or cruel, but uh, that could give him the best chance 
to ever to really play in the league versus getting run out of the league and you know have a certain reputation that you can never overcome. Former NFL player, ESPN analyst Merrill Hodge joins us on the Body Works Plus guest line. You can follow him on X at Merrill Hodge. And Merrill, I know that last year the only quarterback you had a first-round grade on was C.J. Stroud. What are your thoughts about Bryce Young coming into his second year with the Panthers? Can he turn it around? Well, here's why I had him. At a, I had him as a second-round round grade. And when they when I did that, they are like, what? He's, he's the one that has the trophy. I'm like, he's he won what? He won the Heisman Trophy. I said, irrelevant. Stupidest thing ever I heard in a meeting. It's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I go, he won a what? I go, that doesn't make, that make that doesn't <laughs> nothing about playing in the National Football League. He goes, we won a national championship. Again, it doesn't matter. He played for Alabama, and they're better than everybody else about 90% of the time. But the year he started, that he eroded and he got hurt, what happened? Their team wasn't as good as everybody, so the flaws started to come about. And I go back to playing from the pocket. 70% is dirty. When you watched him play from the pocket, that is when 5'9 showed up and his limited ability to throw. It almost imagined like you're in a pocket and then you have a rainbow out there. Okay, that was his radius. Okay? If he can't throw any time, and he can't throw the ball outside of that with any sense of accuracy or consistency. There you go, CJ Stroud. You got no limitations. Zero. You got ways to do things with him that are, you know, are magical. What, what they were thinking there? I mean, I don't know who made the decision. I, I've still never heard who made it. Um, um, it, it to me, I, I think it's ownership because usually when ownership makes that decision, they fire everybody. So they, they're not going to get everybody rid of everybody that can hold them accountable um, or say it's their fault that they didn't develop them. But as hard as this kid works, he's never going to be six three. And listen, from six one to to five nine, six one's a problem. You know, like I go to Caleb Williams, six one is going to be a a problem. That is that is true across the board with passing lanes and seeing things and missing things and how defenses will handle you in the NFL versus what experience you have in college. That will be a factor, and you'll always be dealing with that. They'll always be dealing with five nine. He will always have limitations of where he to the football. Now, listen from a how I evaluate. He knows how to play the position, though. He really does. He had. I gave him a ten on toughness because he took some hits in college. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how did he get up? I'm like, that is the toughest dude I've ever seen. But here's the problem in the NFL. Sometimes you're like, boy, who are we going to get there that can finish? There's not a team in the NFL that goes, our kicker could get there and finish because he's so tiny. <laughs> I mean, and I, was, I even put in my notes, I go, somebody might be arrested for murder when they hit him because he is just so small. And he won't last an entire season. And he's not going to. I go, if you're okay with him playing 14, 15 games, then draft him. You know, if you're okay with being limited every week that you go out there with how you're going to have to game play and you have to scheme around that, it's already hard enough when you have a guy with no limitations. And now that's what you're, you're dealing, dealing with all the time. I don't think there's any doubt you can make a certain scheme. He can play better, but you will always have limitations and defenses will crush them. Once they know, okay, you can't push it outside the numbers – well, I ain't got to run for certain coverages. I ain't got to play certain things to this guy. And I can pressure in ways I don't. I can't pressure most kids in the NFL. And eventually, you're never going to withstand that. You could you'll play better. But to win a championship with, with um, those limitations, um, I've not seen happen. And I don't, I don't see happening. Um, 
And, you know, this will go on for a minute. Maybe another staff gets fired and, you know, eventually, you know, I said the draft, draft picks like that hold your franchise hostage for at least four years. That was Merrill Hodge, former NFL player and ESPN analyst, joining us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. You can follow him at Merrill Hodge. Merrill, we enjoyed it, man. We look forward to talking to you down the road. Anytime, boys. You guys holler at me and get back to your producer. Tell him I'm okay. No doubt about it. He's fine, Fitty. He's fine. <laughs> just so you know, Merrill Hodge. Huge uh, Drake May fan, Merrill Hodge is. No doubt about it, Glowing man. Review. There, there is a lot to dissect there. <laughs> We're going to get to that a little bit later in the show because up next, we've got Fire or Fizzle. It is a leap year. Today is leap day, so I'm going to give you the greatest leaps in sports on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. That's me throwing my questions away from Errol Hodge in the last segment. <laughs> Goodness gracious. My man can talk about Drake May not being an NFL quarterback, can he? How are you feeling, Fitty? Are you okay? People were asking about you on the text line. Lots of people tuned in saying, who is this guy? It was Merrill Hodge, the great Merrill Hodge, that has had some pretty key hits on NFL draft prospects before, but clearly does not like Drake May. And so people were asking, one, who is this? Two, how is Fitty dealing with all of the Drake May criticism that Hodge brought to the table? I think we know why he's no longer at ESPN. Oh, we're going to say that after he's off the air. All right, and Fitty, you did just say, hold on, you was just talking about how much you used to love Ed's NFL matchup. Now, don't be a hypocrite. I I loved Merrill Hodge as a kid growing up. I'd get up at 6.30 on Sunday to watch NFL (laughs) matchups. Him and Ron Jaworski and Sal Palantonio. Let's just say, Fitty, I know you like a book. You didn't like it because he was talking about a guy that you love. If he said it about a quarterback that you agreed with, you would be lockstep with him and what he had to say. And I think that's the problem a lot of people have with what he has to say, that they're Drake May fans, and so they don't want to hear it. But if it was about Caleb Williams or maybe some of the other prospects, I'm not sure that that would be the case. No, but I, and we have Fire Fizzle. We, the, we can do yeah, this. Yeah, we be- do. We need to do this well, in another thing. Okay, I promise. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> we have enough time because we got out early because I didn't know if we were going to be able to get out if we asked him another question. Well, you know, yeah. and I, I thought about hitting the foul line intro when he got off the phone. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I, I just didn't want to run the risk of maybe he was listening by chance or his people were listening. And he immediately gets shredded 10 seconds after getting off the telephone. Okay, so but there we, are people that agree with him as well on the text line. Uh, our texters aren't the smartest people either, Wes. <laughs> All right, fire fizzle. Let's get to it. Y'all taking up my damn time. This is Wes's airtime. Okay, he hasn't <laughs> had enough today. <laughs> he hasn't had enough. He needs more. It's fire or fizzle. Greatest leaps in sports with it being leap day. I like this idea. You I like saw it. it late. And so I like all of these that are mentioned. Let's okay. go to the first one. It's probably the one I think of most if you're to think of best jumps in sports history. Mm-hmm. Bob Beeman. Long jump record set in 1968. He floats through the air. It's still one of the best sports photos of all time. Fire Fizzle West Bryant. Six seconds is all it took for Bob Beeman to leap his way into history. He jumped in 
incomprehensible. 29 feet, two and a half inches. Not only did he become the first 29-foot long jumper that day, but he became the first to pass 28 feet, two. He snapped the existing mark by almost two feet. The night before the finals, he had all types of stuff going on. I mean, he had lost his scholarship to Texas El Paso for participating in a boycott with other blacks of a meet against Brigham Young. It was crazy. He wasn't getting along with his wife. I know a lot of y'all can relate to that. Okay. But Beeman's world record stood for 23 years <laughs> until it was finally broken in 1991 when Mike Powell jumped 8.95 meters at the World Championships in Tokyo. But Beeman's jump is still the Olympic record and 55 years later remains the second longest win legal jump in history. So Bob Beeman, for all the issues that you had going on that night, you put it all to the side and you came out and you got the job done for a record that is still one of the greatest records today. So what the hell you think I'm about to say? Bob Beeman's long jump record is straight fire! It's still one of the best. It, the, some people will tell you that sports feats in the past don't hold up as much. One thing that comes to mind is the Willie, Me Willie Mays over the shoulder catch. It's like, okay, we see that all the time. That still holds up. The Bob Beeman jump, the photo, is still glorious. We move on. My favorite dunk contest of all time, Vince Carter, winning in 2000. That's right. I don't know which leap in particular you're going with. Maybe it's the between the legs. Maybe it's the honey dip. Maybe it's the 360 from the uh, from the baseline. Or maybe it's all the leaps, okay? We're talking about the 2000 NBA Slam Dunk Contest. Pick one. I mean, which one could I pick? There's so many. The two-handed slam dunk from just inside the free throw line. The behind-the-backboard windmill slam dunk. Off the bounce between the legs slam dunk. I mean, the do you realize my entire forearm is inside of this basket slam dunk? And then that 360 windmill slam dunk that set the doggone thing off. Vince Carter, I don't care what you say. You can at me at West Bryant underscore 72. Greatest in-game dunker and the greatest slam dunk contest performance of all time. Vince Carter, yes, I'm giving a Tar Heel credit. And yes, I'm saying a Tar Heel is straight. Fire BC and Canada. Merrill Hodge thought it was trash when he evaluated that dunk contest. <laughs> that was terrible. All right. Next one. Baron Davis. Dunk on Eddie Griffin. A few to choose from here as well. Charlotte Hornet. Baron Davis. The Eddie Griffin dunk from Charlotte Hornet. Yes. Baron Davis. Fire fizzle. Baron Davis back in January 26th of 2002. Baron Davis made a highlight that would live in Hornets history forever. Coming off of the right wing, he dribbled to the left. Steve Francis fell down in the process. He went to the rack. And you know what BD did once he got in the air? He was going to punish somebody. I I mean, he had the crazy dunk on Andre Karolinko, one of the greatest facials of all time. But in the Queen City, we got him dunking on Eddie Griffin, former parade All-American, former parade player of the year, Eddie Griffin. And also in that game, BD dropped 34, going 13 of 25 from the field and 6 of 10 from three with 11 dimes. So Baron Davis for the Charlotte Hornets nostalgia is the rate. Fire! Word to the high! What about his blind man bluff dunk contest dunk? That's pretty fizzle, I yeah. guess. Yeah, that was pretty bad. But not that one. That was fire, and so we move on. <laughs> Next one. Charlotte's very own. That's right. Dwight Clark. 
uh-huh. The Catch uh-huh. on Fitties Cowboys uh-huh. Fire Fizzle West. Listen, January 10th, 1982. 58 seconds left in the game. 49ers faced the third down and three on the Cowboys' six-yard line. Joe Montana dropped back the pass. The pressure was coming. People were covered. So what did Joe do? He did what he does best. He improvised. He threw it up in the back of the end zone. And waiting there, fresh out of the Queen City, fresh out of Garinger High School, Dwight Clark made a leaping grab in the back of the end zone to complete a six-yard touchdown pass for the 49ers to take out the Cowboys 28-27. This play is widely regarded as one of the greatest plays in NFL history. Came at the end of a 14-play, 83-yard game-winning drive. The catch symbolized the end of the Cowboys' domination in the NFC since the conference's inception in 1970 and the beginning of the 49ers' rise to an NFL dynasty in the 80s. Folks, you know me. You know what team I cheer for. And then we add in an element to the city that I love so much where I'm from. We're talking about Dwight Clark. We're talking about Garinger High School. If they had 22 Dwight Clarks, they would be one of the best high schools in the nation. But they're not. No shade to Garinger, but maybe just a little bit. Okay. But Dwight Clark's catch is straight fire legendary. Go yourself. What Last was that one? for? Because you're it's over the Cowboys, man. City's oh. Cowboys got beaten that leap. Gotcha. That's a tough leap for him to relive on Fire Fizzle. <laughs> Last one, maybe the most famous leap of all time, too. I think of Bob Beeman, but this is maybe next or even beats Bob Beeman. Michael Jordan, free throw line, turned out to be a logo. Jump man himself. Tell us what you think, Wes. I mean, after breaking his foot in his sophomore year, Jordan was back to kill in the 86-87 season, averaging 37 points a game. But he just did not want to conquer the NBA. He said he was going to go to the 1987 NBA All-Star Game, and he was going to conquer that too. He was one of the favorites alongside Clyde Drexler and Terrence Stansberry, wherever he is. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, the dump may not have been a clean takeoff from the charity stripe. The left foot was slightly inside of the line. But then he launched into the air, double-clutched the ball before dunking it with grace and power. It only got a 49, but the impact of it was a 1,000, a 1 million, whatever number you want to put on it. The 1987 slam dunk really started the ball rolling for Michael Jordan becoming the man who could fly. You had the posters on your wall. You got the T-shirts. You watched the videos. You watched Come Fly With Me. Michael Jordan coming from the free throw line is straight. What the hell you think I was going to say? It's straight fire. It's all fire. Straight fire for today, the leap year on leap day. Fitty, cut the music off before I leap over the board. Happy leap day from Wes and Walker. We'll move on to the last hour of the show. It's the Live Wire with Josh, J.D., Fitty Marlowe. Coming up next, Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ.